The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I am Molly Balin. And I'm Eric Deutsch. And we welcome back for the last time, Brad Mendenhall, patient and silently enduring producer of this very podcast, host and lord of Minute of Darkness, Cosmic Geppetto, and co-host of Flash Gordon Minute. Shit, I've done a lot of shows. Fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Holy crap. You you once put something in the liner notes for some Cosmic Geppetto episode last year that I was on, and you said, Eric, the, the, the man just cannot stop podcasting. <laughs> but I, you are the man who cannot stop podcasting. God, and somebody asked me about this. It's like, how do you end up getting into this? It's like, honestly, this was just supposed to be a chance for me to, like, bullshit about Marvel movies with a couple of friends, and I don't know what the hell happened. Cosmic Geppetto was originally going to be called movies... It was originally called Movies at Marvel, and we was just going to be us talking about... The movies of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, and we first episode was about Iron Man. We went off the rails almost immediately, and we just we decided to change the name then because we were talking with authors and musicians and uh, documentarians, and it, it just ended up going in so many different directions. Um, but it really, if you would have told me that the sh- that show would have lasted more than six months, I would have been stunned. And Cosmic Geppetto's been going on for three years, and then we've had we've had spinoffs, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is a wonderful show with uh, some mainstays from Cosmic Geppetto, Mike uh, Watson and Katie May, uh, and then having the chance to do Minute of Darkness and to do Flash Gordon Minute, and Flash Gordon Minute uh, being such a treasure, because I had a chance to meet Eric, and um, Eric and I had never spoken before we did that show. We had... We had two pre-production phone calls, and then we recorded our first episode after that. Yep, we had, had two conversations. And, uh, you know, and to, to, to be ever so slightly on the sentimental side, uh, it was such a blessing because, uh, as Eric, I think, can attest, when you're in your 40s and you have kids, making new friends is not a priority. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, Eric has just become a dear friend because uh, we have such a great time producing this show and uh, doing Flash Gordon Minute. Uh, You know, Molly, you and Eric have both uh, guested on uh, Cosmic Geppetto. And, you know, it's just uh, it's just been fantastic. And, uh, you know, I I look forward to seeing what everyone does next. I know you're we're still pretty early. You were still sort of early into this movie. We're not even halfway done yet. Oh, I think I think next week we might hit the halfway point. I think so. It, it, I'm loving how this, this is. I think this is a great show, uh, Eric. You know, you did a great job and you had a fantastic concept for this because you didn't want this to just be Flash Gordon Minute, right? You know, we stripped out a lot of the fun stuff, but Flash Gordon was a different was a different movie. So, uh, you know, that had the music at the end and a little more wacky hijinks in the middle, uh, and. You guys have such a great, very specific vibe that works with this movie so great. Getting the great music and from KJ Valencic and everything. So, um, yeah, it's just been really cool how uh, a lot of this just sprung out of you know in indirect ways. I just want to talk to some friends about Iron Man. 
Mm. <laughs> Three, four years later, it's like, okay, this is the, you know, the fifth show to have at least a little bit of Cosmic Geppetto DNA uh, through it. It is part of that family tree. So it, it's really exciting for me to see. Well said. And on a side note, Iron Man has some of the best writing of the entire MCU, I have to say. It is if anybody is a screenwriter or a burgeoning screenwriter, go go tear that movie apart because that's an example of like really fucking excellent screenwriting. Especially the first five minutes is just brilliant. Anywho, I'm gonna get off that. <laughs> and we're gonna get into minute forty-eight. And minute forty-eight begins with an epic walk up the stairs, a powerful door knock, and ends with the introduction <laughs> of John Carpenter's ex-wife. <laughs> This is one of the best door knocks in movie history, no? Using a shoe? <laughs> it, was that just business that Borgnine did? I, 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 part of me wants to say he's like, he just forgot to tie his shoes and he was like going to reach out. I was like, ah, I'll just whack it with my shoe. <laughs> I would love to know Carpenter's process. It, does he run? Honest to God, because it, it makes me, watching these minutes, I don't think he gives any actor a single note. <laughs> because uh, as I called out at the beginning of the week, Borgnine and Russell seem like they're in different movies, the performance they're giving. And I, I wanna—I would love to know, is Carpenter like a real X's and O's guy? Uh, like, you know, the choreography of the, the action and the movement, uh, but little things like Borgnine deciding to whack the door with his shoe and just how over the top he is, is he's just like, eh, it'll work. And it does. It's really hard to argue the success of this film because we're talking about it. But, uh, yeah, him just whacking it with the shoe was pretty great. It's an elegant solution, although I'd worry about being barefoot anywhere on Manhattan, given the, the situation these guys got going on. Yeah. That, You're just breathing in hepatitis. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, it should be mentioned, Brad is pretty deep into his second glass of wine by the time <laughs> this recording is done. It is 19 Crimes Wine. 19 crimes? 19 crimes. It's an Australian wine based on the crimes that uh, people would perpetrate in England that would justify them being sent to Australia. Oh. I thought sort of tied into just the theme of this movie. Basically, Australia was England's uh, New York. Right. Yeah. And now it's producing all of our our hot actors, basically, and reshipping them back over. Fair. All right. <laughs> I don't think Eric and I have anywhere to go with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> we all know Hemsworth is dreamy, okay? We get it. I think he's a very fine actor. I like him as an actor. <laughs> I can't compete with him in the looks department, I can tell you that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the only shot we got is if you have Fat Hemsworth from uh, Ragnar. I mean, uh, from the Endgame. But I kind of dig Fat Hemsworth, honestly. Like, I feel like if you were in college, you know, he probably would have sold you like a dime bag, and you probably would have, uh, you know. Uh, well, the thing is, boy, off track. Uh, <laughs> I was like, huh? You just think of how many hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent on giving Hemsworth that body. It's like, fit. That's just me going to we having a weekend where I go to five guys too many times, and that's me. So. <laughs> there is something a little bit degrading to the average person that they had to put him in a fat suit, and you're kind of like, yeah, that's kind of I don't know. I kind of look like that after Thanksgiving, you know. I just 
it's, it's, it's my, my somewhat normal resting state that you got going on there. <laughs> so this is a pretty cool building. Uh, and of course, we're in St. Louis here. Uh, this is the new Masonic Temple at 3681 Lindell Boulevard. So this is kind of an interesting little bit of history. And I think, Eric, you might have done a little research about this building as well. Um, other, other than it being really, I don't know, very classical and actually having kind of what one might think of a, a New York trope looking feel. Because I think this is supposed to be the New York Public Library, correct? Is that the, the yes, vibe of what it's supposed to be? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, it's obviously supposed to be the New York City Public Library, the, the, the main branch. I mean, it's clearly meant to be the main branch, It's done, which is on 5th Avenue, 42nd Street. Uh, Cabby even said in the previous minute, Snake shouldn't be walking to 42nd Street. Uh, once we get inside in next week's minutes, it, it's clearly a, an enormous library. You can even tell here on the outside how big of a building it is. But interestingly enough, in the script... It's referred to as the 150th Street Memorial Library. There are so many problems with the script having it be that. Because first of all, the only library branch of the New York Public Library that looks anything like this is the main branch at 5th and 42nd. All the other things are you know, storefronts or you know, small little buildings. Nothing else is this large or this grandiose. Also, 150th Street in Manhattan is way, way up there. I mean, it's way north of where this movie is taking place. There's no way Cabby drove there. There's no way this movie is taking place there. It's not anywhere near Broadway. It's not near Grand Central Station. It's not near Madison Square Garden. It's not near World Trade Center. It's not near anything else that's in this movie. There's a lot of that happening where there's a, a suspension of disbelief of maps in this whole thing. Uh, this is a 1926 building, which has a bit of its own history. Um, it housed the former officer of then-Senator and Freemason Grandmaster Harry S. Truman. Uh, and also, coincidentally, or Ernest Borgnine, and I don't know why I would know this or not know this, was a Mason and had actually attended meetings in this very building. So that's kind of a weird dink. That is a weird coincidence. That is crazy. But also, in the script, the, the facade is described as saying that the stone lions are still out front. Now, the stone lions are two very famous sculptures outside the main New York City public library branch. They're called Patience and Fortitude. Uh, everybody from New York knows them. A lot of people from pop culture know them. It's the only one, again, that has two lions. So it's very strange. This is, again, one of those things where this movie gets so much of the minute details about Manhattan correct and yet still gets several things really wrong. There is no branch on 150th Street of the library. 150th Street's not anywhere near where this movie takes place. The Lions are not outside the 150th Street library. Now, again, the movie does not mention this. This is only said in the script, so unless you're looking at the script, you're not knowing any of this anyway. So this obviously is supposed to be in the main branch. I just don't know why the script refers to it as the 150th Street Memorial Library. So that was a really, really long-winded answer, Molly. Yes, this is supposed to be in the main branch of the New York Public Library. Okay. Yeah, I read something about that, but as I don't recall anything, and maybe they do bring that up in a future minute, and it's a minute detail that I just don't recall. I just didn't remember that them saying that in the course of conversation, but maybe that'll come up. But a little bit about this building that I was reading. This is... Uh, 
1926 building has its own history, and it housed the former officer of then-Senator and Freemason Grand Master Harry S. Truman, who then became president eventually, and before we flying... Do. We do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God! <laughs> wow, that was surprising. <laughs> He's had that whole thing. He, he, he's had that one chambered for years. <laughs> Doesn't know Constantine, but we have a, a real deep, true connection to Harry S. Truman, former president. Uh, so he uh, was housed there before flying solo to Paris aboard the Spirit of St. Louis. Uh, and aviator Charles Lindbergh was initiated as a Mason at the temple. And then the other really weird thing about this is that Ernest Borgnine is slash was a Mason. And he had attended meetings here. So it's weird that, and I don't know if he was like, oh, this is a sweet building. As long as I'm in town and I'm a Mason, we're going to have our like secret Illuminati discussions here because I'm here right now. Or if that was prior to the filming of this movie. But I think it's interesting that he already had a connection to this separately from just working. Eric, any any of the men in your family Masons? I'm not allowed to say. Oh, I can I can't answer that question because if if they are I can't tell you and if they're not well then I have nothing to say either way I just I can't say okay I just violated the rule of yes and that usually applies to movies by minute podcasting yeah I I, I said Mason's not Fight Club for Christ's sakes but all right no no one in my family is a Mason my father was a Mason wow really did not give a shit about it. It was funny. He never went to any... It, it was a thing where... Uh, and my father's in the 70s. The generation before him, that was a big deal. Um, like, being a Mason. And, of course, just a thing where dad would take him and dad would take him and his... his pardon me. My, my grandfather would take my dad my grandfather would take my dad and eventually he just became a Mason. He had a Mason ring that was in... Uh, there was, like, a ring dish in the kitchen... Uh, you know, and there was a Mason ring, and I would always, and I was just looking at that. I was like, Dad, what's this about? I was like, I don't know, and he did not care. Eventually, uh, and one time he did, he never paid his dues, and he once got a letter from the Mason Lodge saying that brother, whatever, paid my dad's dues for him because that's the meaning of brother, and it was obviously a way to guilt him into like start coming to meetings again. So, but you know, he he just did not care. Um. I think his was the last generation where a percentage of people really cared about that. And I'm sure there still are. I'm sure there, there are people who are involved in that. But like two or three generations ago, being a Mason was a huge deal. And I, I, I just think there's too many other things to do now that guys can find other ways to get out of the house. I mean, like we said, you know, there's at least three Marvel movies a year. That alone is enough. Did you ever see the Monty Python Freemason sketch? No, I don't believe I have. All right, everyone, uh, go on YouTube, watch the Monty Python Freemason sketch. It's funny. If you like Monty Python. Because aren't Masons just, like, dudes? It's, like, a dude-only thing, isn't it? Correct. Okay. Because, like, I remember there was a girl that I went to high school with, and I think her family was, like, into the Mason thing. But they had... And maybe because they're like, oh, we need to have something for the kids or, or whatever. There was like, it was like rainbow something, but it was for teenage girls. So there was a separate like group of like Freemason ladies that she was a part of. Well, as we record this, the U.S. women just won the World Cup. So Molly, bring the pain with that crap. I mean, there's, you know, whatever. The, it, it's, a, it's an old boys club. But yeah, there was, I recall that there was a separate, maybe a, a modern 
here, we're going to give you this type of a thing. But uh, historically, I always thought the Freemasons were, yeah, dudes only. And, you know, and I don't know with your dad, if it was just like he was like the life of the party and he was like, I got better shit to do. And they're like, please come back. It sucks without you. <laughs> um, I don't. <laughs> they're all dying. Oh. And nobody's replacing them. <laughs> because, you know, if. Because there just once upon a time was a thing where. Especially, uh, my father grew up in sort of a uh, farm country. There just wasn't shit to do. Mm. So, and uh, so basically, if you wanted to get together with your buddies and get hammered, you were going to go to the Mason Lodge. And, you know, well, uh, in the last 40 years, there's plenty of other ways to go out and get hammered. Uh, mm. So, the, the need just isn't there. And, and it's also just a thing of you don't really want to do the thing that your dad did, uh, especially when it's like, the, the, especially when there's all the rules and all the. I don't want pageantry is not really the right, but there's just a lot of there's just a lot of formality to it, and you know, who needs that crap? Yeah, I get like capes and a hat and a, I mean, you get jewelry and I mean, there's stuff. I don't know. Yeah, it's shrouded under mystery. And the, and then I think it has kind of a, a rep of being kind of a secret society, too, doesn't it? Isn't there, like, a little bit of an Illuminati yeah, thing with it? it? You know, with with any group like that, where it's a little secret and it's very easy. And because they're secretive, they don't refute rumors very well because then you're ruining the secret. Uh, so it's really easy to just make up shit and you get that sort of weird Illuminati thing. But really, it was just a bunch of drunk old farmers. <laughs> well that that was the joke i was going for when i was refusing to answer that that really fell flat a few minutes ago no no it was hilarious no comedy gold <laughs> save that for the best of yes please when, when cosmic <laughs> geppetto does our 200th episode we're going to be including that that uh that gold nugget yeah isolate that minute <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i i I can't remember anymore. One of you said in one of the earlier minutes this week how uh, Cabby, you know, is so different from anyone else in the movie, and and people kind of tolerate him. And as as our next new character enters the movie, before we start uh, getting uh, into the actress and the character, it it is very humorous that before she even opens the door, she clearly finds Cabby incredibly annoying is not interested in all of why the hell he's there. And I think it's a great, it, it really is a great bit of voice acting since her face is not on the screen when she says it. She's just like, you know, just get lost. Get like, Ugh, what are you doing here? What do you want? You, you can almost hear her saying to herself, it's like, he's just going to stare at my chest again. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know Cabby's just an old latch. <laughs> <laughs> He's, you know, in the world we're in, and he's the kind of guy who just stare at her chest and, like, think he's being subtle when he's rubbing himself, but he's not being subtle rubbing himself. Well, he's played by Ernest Borgnine. He's played by Ernest Borgnine. a great story, you know, earlier this week, Brad. So there you go. Yeah, you know, this is, this is he's going a complete Stanislavski method in uh, his, his lechery, so, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the door opens, and the beautiful Adrian Barbeau playing Maggie is standing before us, and this is uh, our main female character of the movie, 
And in when this movie was being made, she was married to John Carpenter. They had met on the set of his television movie, Someone's Watching Me. And there's a very interesting way that she's described in the script. And keep in mind that I don't know if John Carpenter had his wife in mind when he wrote the script. I don't know he when. Did. He did. Okay, so then... This is an interesting sentence that he wrote considering he had her in mind. The draft script says, she looks well-preserved for the prison, like she's been treated well. That's got a weird feel to it. Yeah. <laughs> Especially since he was writing this about his wife. I get what he's going for. It, it, oh, you know, I get the, what he's going for, yeah. Yeah, you know, the idea that she just looks, and not just attractive-wise, but dress better and better hair like you know everything about her she should be the only person that looks like she's going to a spa but you could say that different so uh she looks amazing she she looks great uh, looking at and it's funny and we only get a minute of her or, or a few seconds of her but i realized everybody knows who adrian barbeau is and everybody you know she's beautiful and a good actress. Uh, I think that sort of gets lost. That she she definitely had some acting ability. Um, I looked through her IMDb page. Not nearly as big an actress as I thought. I, I had in my head that she had a run at trying to be that A-list star, and it just didn't, you know, and it peaked. She never did. Mm -hmm. I mean, she she really is a B-movie actress who got to do some TV stuff, and it sort of seems weird with as much sort of cultural awareness there is about her and just the general accepting that she is a sex symbol that she never seemed to get that run at being a female lead in a, a big deal movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, other than this, she made two other movies with John Carpenter, The Fog and The Thing. Um, and the stuff that I know her the most for other than this movie is she has a small role in the beginning of Back to School. Uh, she's in one of the segments of Creepshow. And of course... Probably her most famous role, Swamp Thing, I would say. Mm. Yeah, Swamp Thing. And that wasn't a successful movie. That's that's no, a, definitely no, a cult a flop. thing. Yeah. yeah, it was a flop. Uh, yeah, between that and playing the daughter in Maud. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, it's amazing that you, you got to give so much credit that despite not having that real, like, huge run of success... Everybody knows who she is. She still has a lot of cachet. Um, but really, it's based on not any one particular movie. It's just she was really sexy and, and in, in, in an interesting way because she was still a badass. Mm -hmm. You know, not a lot of damsel in distress. Um, I mean, when you see her in the scene, honestly, she's I feel like she's the only character in this movie we've seen so far that you think could probably take Snake in a fight. Yes. Yeah, yes. she is. She is definitely of the Sarah Connor, Princess Leia mold of this movie. She is not a damsel in distress at all. Mm -mm, no, and I love her response to being introduced to Snake of like your Pliskin. Yeah, it's great. It's the least impressed of anybody upon first meeting in this movie. <laughs> oh yeah, everyone else is tripping over themselves. Yeah, and he's mm -hmm. like. Your like 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 this loser here with the patch and these horrible pants. You, I love that response. Like in terms of like favorite lines, I love this moment so much. Of her like, who the fuck are you? Like really, <laughs> this guy? <laughs> so good. And the perm man. Whew. 
know? <laughs> Good fucking Lord. You know? It was a tough decade. It really was. I, I can't judge because I'm pretty sure there's pictures of me at nine years old with that same haircut. <laughs> I'm not joking. I should send it over. It's heinous. Like, puberty is like a rough thing, man. Like, it just, it just shouldn't. I don't know for for those who might be younger like the 80s were like a, a very firm perm time that if you were for for everybody really um there was a lot of chemicals being put on people's hair to keep them curly. Did you guys ever do perms by the way like in your did you succumb to that? My hair I didn't need a perm. I was the missing Brady kid. <laughs> it was so curly. I keep my hair really very short and tight because uh, it, it, it'll start grabbing people that walk by. Uh, <laughs> you were totally on trend, just just genetically. Yeah, uh, and I would just I would just have to go through the thing of a lot of the hair gel and like having to like blow dry it to keep it down. That's not what you usually do. You usually do that to like add volume. It's like no, I got to make sure it dries out, or else it'll just it'll be like a cartoon movie where you hear the springs. Uh, <laughs> Uh, like kind of goes like sprawling, sprawling. That's would be my hair if I didn't like just do everything I could to turn it into a freaking helmet. So no, no, the perm was not something that needed to happen for me. And Eric, you never did the perm. No, no, I, 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 I don't care. I don't care enough. There's no way. <laughs> I don't know how to trans- transition from perms to voice work, but uh, this lady has is a badass. I had no idea how much voice work she'd done until I checked out IMDb. Um, and she's done, I mean, a series of video games. Um, she's also known, and I didn't know this because I used to watch this, but she was voice a Catwoman on Batman the Animated Series, and I watched the shit out of that when I was a kid. But she was uh, great in that. Yeah. That was really good voice work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like she's somebody that you don't know that you know her, you know, because she's done all of this work. She's done Fallout 76 is more recent. There's a Mad Max video game she did. She did God of War Ascension, Hitman Absolution, Halo 4. She did the Batman Arkham Asylum video game, which I've also played, had no idea. Uh, New Batman Adventures, Gotham Girls, Descent 3, also another video game. She did Judge Dredd and uh, was in the thing as a computer voice. It's all voice work. You know, and it just shows there's more to her than just the fact that she had a great figure. Um, Mm -hmm. Because ain't nobody asking Pamela Anderson to do voice work. No. Because there's nothing there aside from, you know, sort of the obvious. And Barbot, she... I mean, just to go back to what I said before, she could have made a run at it. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, usually bombshells have a tough time, especially, I want to say, starting in the 70s. It, it, it was tough. It, you could be attractive, and it certainly helped to be attractive to be a lead actress, but it was just something about bombshells that wouldn't seem to connect with that larger audience. Um, so she might have had a tough time that way. But, yeah, it's just funny that nobody gave her a shot because there's a lot there than just... You know, she looks good in a tight shirt. I think there was a real missed opportunity in putting her in a serious science fiction role. You know, if I think she just, you know, if she could have gotten into really Star Trek or the next generation, I think she would have been great on that. Something that, you know, she could really be cemented iconically for. 
I mean, she did do some episodes of Babylon 5, DS9, Sliders, if you guys remember that show. Sure. But yeah, I feel like it was just a missed opportunity that, you know, being a bombshell and being somebody who can obviously tolerate a high level of fucking weirdness, she could have really done well there. And I think, and, and I don't know, just, you know, however life went for her, but yeah, I, I think that would have been a, a missed opportunity and I would have enjoyed seeing her in that context. Yeah, I know that, uh, interesting, uh, Next Generation, I could seen her, I know that the character lasted less than the full season uh, because the actress that played her, uh, Denise Crosby, Lieutenant Tasha Yar, asked to be written out of the show because she just, she wasn't happy with what they were doing with her character. I could, I could have, I know she was a little bit older than uh, Denise Crosby at the time, but I could have seen her playing that role, being the badass chief of security on, on a oh. Star Trek show. Dude, Eric, genius. She would have been such a good Tasha Yar. And, you know, she probably could have, like, at least made a few more runs at it. Right. Yeah, she would have been great at that. It would have been perfect. And it also would have been, just from, a like, a business standpoint, when that start, when Next Generation came out, there's name value to her. Like, people would have been excited to see her in that role. Um, because Next Generation, I mean, Patrick Stewart was a respected stage actor, but it wasn't like he was a big deal. Mm-mm. No. no, the biggest the biggest name was LeVar Burton for reading Rainbow when the show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Kunta Kinte. And Kunta Kinte, right. Yeah, yeah. By the way, real quick trivia, who's Denise Crosby's uh, grandfather? Bing. Very good. No, I'm sorry, I the pizza's being delivered. That was uh, that was my door. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you want to, uh, <laughs> hey, I'm a dad. What do you want from me, man? Dad, dad jokes are in in 2019. Come on. <laughs> And then more, more about Adrian Barbeau being a badass. So after she got divorced to John Carpenter, she married Billy Van Zant, who, by the way, is the half-brother of Stephen Van Zant, and gave birth to twins at the age of 51. Son of a bitch! She gave birth to twins at 51? Yes! Damn! My wife was in her 30s when she gave birth to twins. I almost killed her. So that is, a, that is impressive shit. It is, yeah. Wow. Good for her. Yeah, so basically none of us are as badass as Adrian Barbeau. No, no, absolutely not. Uh, Brad, I want to ask you, uh, you've heard us talk to a lot of the guests about whether this movie is sci-fi or not. And I am, I've been digging in my heels that I don't consider it sci-fi. I think I've come up with what I do think it is. Dystopian speculative fiction is what I think of it as. Uh, so let, let's get you to weigh in on this great debate. Is this movie sci-fi or not? I think it's a great question. It definitely is trying to tweak sci-fi tropes, but you're right. The, the, the dystopian is such a great thing that you have to hang over that because sci-fi just it, it's hard to buy that when it's so completely dark and when there's nothing fanciful about the movie. There, there's nothing. There's no spaceship. There's no like all the technology just feels like it's a few years advanced. But not enough where it like goes into the realm of sci-fi. So I would say no. Yes, <laughs> you are the first person to agree with me. And I get because you know what? If I go to a sci-fi rack at your uh, borders, I mean uh, your your uh, borders. That does you're dating yourself. Well, I was even going to go more with the, the the blockbuster. When you go to the. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> If, if you go to, you know, the, the rack at the blockbuster for sci-fi, this is the one that's going to stick. This would be the movie. If it's there, it's going to stick out like a sore thumb. And maybe that's why this is something that held the movie back, because it really is 
it's it's nothing. It 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 doesn't fit into one particular box. It's an action movie without a ton of action. Right. It's not a horror movie, although there are some sort of uncomfortable things that happen. You just the revealing of the president's finger in the early minutes of the movie, and it's all and that scene is also presented in a way that's a little squeamish. It's sort of all these things and none of these things. It takes parts from horror, it takes parts from action, it takes parts from sci-fi, but it ramps each of those aspects down and merges them together, which sort of makes it a little bit of everything and a lot of nothing. But I like that. I like stuff where, because of that, because it's not any one particular genre, it's hard to know how to feel when you're watching the movie. And it's like, I, you don't know if Snake's going to win, because it feels like a horror movie where the good guys aren't necessarily going to come out alive. Um, so, and you don't know if anyone's going to survive or if anyone's really a good guy because you don't know what movie this is. If it was an action movie, oh, Snake's going to win the day and he's going to make out with the girl at the end. Well, you don't feel like that's going to happen because it's not an action movie. So, you know, I, I just think I don't want to give it any label because of that. And that was probably one of the problems with uh, Escape from L.A. Escape from L.A. was an action movie. Snake isn't an action hero. Um, you know, he, he's really the man with no name from the, the Eastwood movies, even though he definitely has a name because they say it all the time. <laughs> uh, but he's that sort of not really he's not really a good guy. You know, he, he's definitely an anti-hero, but even a little bit more on the side of devils than average for that. Brad, it has been awesome having you on the other side of the mic this week. Thank you so much for doing essentially double duty, being guest and producing. Well, I, I'm so happy because I know now this means I can talk a lot more and I'll have my chances to like really interject uh, in future episodes. That... No, no. <laughs> this is it. You had your chance. It's over. Um, before we shut you up, though, why don't you promote Cosmic Geppetto? Yeah, uh, Cosmic Geppetto podcast. We've been doing it for uh, over three years, having a great time, and uh, uh, Eric and Molly have both been on it, and uh, we have just an amazing group of guests and panelists. Uh, we've talked with uh, uh, writers, uh, comic book artists, uh, comic strip artists, uh, musicians, uh, directors, and some really just fascinating people. Um, our idea was we wanted to have this uh, uh, positive, uh, talking about geek culture in a positive way. So uh, we don't bitch about the things that we talk about. We find stuff that we love and we talk about it. And uh, we, we've had them, uh, we have like 50 rotating panelists to come in and out and uh, share some uh, amazing thoughts, including, like I said, Eric and Molly. And uh, it, it's something that I'm really proud of. It started as just me talking with a couple of friends about Marvel movies. And we've had New York Times bestselling authors on and award-winning documentarians, and it, uh, it, it's been uh, really thrilling to do. And uh, we recommend, you know, check your podcatcher uh, for uh, all your podcatchers will have the Cosmic Geppetto podcast. Uh, our Facebook group is the uh, Cosmic Geppetto listeners page. And, uh, you know, we, we would love for everyone to join the fun. If you love uh, Escape from New York Minute, uh, there's enough of a, a shared lineage that I think you'll like Cosmic Geppetto as well. Oh, and, and one, one more thing i got to do, uh, and this is something we've done on Cosmic Geppetto a lot, and uh, this is going to be a complete surprise to Molly and Eric, uh, but that's the way we do. Uh, y you guys have got a great show, 
and I don't think you have nearly enough uh, ratings and reviews on iTunes, and uh, one thing that we like to do at Cosmic Geppetto, and we'd like to have that go throughout all the other shows, is we like to buy people's ratings and reviews. Uh, so what I would ask is for every rating review we get uh, from now until the end of the month, uh, whatever month this comes out at, uh, <laughs> we're going to make a donation, a $1 donation for every rating review to the charity of uh, Molly and Eric's Choice. So uh, please get on it, uh, do that rating review, and it doesn't cost you anything, and uh, you get you bank a little bit of good karma. Wow. He's, he's, he, folks, he's a producer and a good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. I want to remind everyone of our contests that we announced a couple of weeks ago that the person who sends in the best photo, as judged by Molly and me, of Chock Full of Nuts out in the wild will be a guest for one minute of our end credits. You can send as many photos as you want to try to win. Send it to escapefromnewyork at gmail.com. You must be available probably in late November. You must have Skype. And any previous or future scheduled guests are not eligible for the contest. So why don't you chat about our show if you like what you've been listening to on Facebook with us. We're in Brains Library, the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. On Twitter, we're at NY Minute Pod. Uh, as Brad mentioned, we'd love to have ratings and reviews. Uh, as of this recording, I know on iTunes, I think we have one five-star review and nothing else. And subscribe, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> subscribe so you never miss an episode uh, here as well. Hey, um, hey, Eric. Uh, yes, yes, Brad. I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to interrupt you. I know you're about ready to wrap up. Yeah. Um, now I live in New Freedom, Pennsylvania, a small town, uh, south of York, Pennsylvania, and about a half hour north of uh, uh, Baltimore. And uh, they've been putting up some fences around here, uh, and uh, telling us we can't leave. And they're starting to like uh, ship in a bunch of uh, prisoners, uh, some really uh, scary-looking folks. Uh, I think I maybe even saw Martha Stewart, but I don't know if that works. <laughs> so uh, I, I, uh, I, I think I might be in a new prison town, and uh, I don't know how I'm going to get out of here. Oh, well, that, that's, that's awful. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, that you might be surrounded by severed fingers and severed heads and crazies and dukes and chandeliers on hoods. Uh, that, that your town's turning essentially into a Rikers Island. Uh, but if that really is what's going on, Brad, I wouldn't worry about it. Because if you're on time, and if you stay out of the sewers, we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm.